before we hear God speak to us, let's go to him in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Heavenly Father, as we gather on your day, in your name, and in your presence, uh, I pray that your spirit would prepare all of our hearts to hear your word as we rightly should. Uh, Please give me the wisdom to communicate your word effectively, that this might be spirit-empowered preaching and spirit-empowered hearing. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been preaching through the entire Bible, which is quite a feat, but we're doing it one sermon, one book at a time, which is still quite a feat. And it has been difficult to preach one sermon on each book, and the reason it's been difficult varies from book to book. This morning we are looking at 1 Corinthians, and what makes 1 Corinthians uniquely difficult to nail down in a single sermon is the wide range of topics that Paul covers in this letter. I've made not an exhaustive list, but a sampling for you of what 1 Corinthians contains. Its topics include baptism, wisdom, schisms, grace, sex, church discipline, marriage, celibacy, circumcision, idolatry, demons, Old Testament literature and interpretation, liberty, love, head coverings, alcohol, angels, prophecy, Eucharist, gender roles, speaking in tongues, resurrection, finances, and of course God himself. And the reasons for Paul writing 1 Corinthians also vary. He is writing to them in part because the church at Corinth has written to him to ask him some questions, and so he is responding to those questions. Uh, He is also writing to them because there is a letter before 1 Corinthians written to the church at Corinth, a pre-1 Corinthian letter that Paul wrote, and he did not write it under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, which is why we don't have it in our Bible, but nevertheless, he is a building on that letter, clarifying it at parts. Uh, likewise, he is uh, in 1 Corinthians talking about experiences he's had with them physically while he's present with them, as well as uh, reports that he has heard from them as he has been physically away from them. And so all of these different topics, all of these reasons for writing, and what I hope to do this morning, probably not altogether successfully, but hope to do is to pull up one of many of the single themes of 1 Corinthians that I hope covers from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 16 in order to give you a taste of the book so that we can experience it as a whole. And in order to do that, I'm actually going to begin at the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, beginning with verse 12. This is Paul talking about how the bodily resurrection of Jesus in time and space and history is essential for the gospel message, the good news from God to man. Paul says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain 
and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. The resurrection of Jesus bodily in time and space and history is essential to the gospel. It is as essential to the gospel as a spring is to a mousetrap. If you take away the spring from a mousetrap, you do not have a mousetrap. You have a pile of scrap, metal, and wood. Likewise, if you take the resurrection out of the gospel, the good news, you no longer have good news. If Jesus did not bodily rise from the dead in time and space and history, then Paul says that the witness of the apostles is unreliable since they testified that this is what God has done. Likewise, you are still dead in your sins. We often think about our sins as being dealt with on the cross, but Paul says that minus the resurrection, you are dead in your sins. They're not dealt with. If there is no bodily resurrection of Jesus, then we have no guarantee of our future bodily resurrection. In fact, we have the opposite, the guarantee that at death we utterly perish. And if this is the case, Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 15, then let's eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die and nothing really matters. But Christ has indeed risen from the dead. He has risen from the dead. Your sins have been 100% completely, absolutely dealt with. The apostles are reliable witnesses to the truth. And you have a guarantee that someday life, your life will not end at your death. That you will see God with your eyes in a renewed and resurrected body. Now at City Gate Church you hear preaching and teaching frequently from this, I was going to say pulpit, but this table. Um, maybe that's the next thing in our Amazon cart, it's pulpit. But from this table, you hear over and over again, um, we are trying to recalibrate your Bible reading instincts uh, so that when you read a piece of prophecy or apocalyptic literature, your mind does not automatically go to the very end of history, but it goes back to AD 70, or to the birth of Jesus, or the crucifixion of Jesus. And I don't want to take anything away from that. Yes and amen, that should be the pattern you have in your Bible reading. Uh, you have been taught over and over again that we are indeed in the new heavens and the new earth. And yes and amen. And because of that, because you are in the new heavens and a new earth, right now, because Jesus is ruling and reigning, because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, history, broad brush speaking, does indeed get better and better and better. Yes and amen to all of that. But what we, I don't believe, have done and what we have no intention of doing is focusing so much on the present 
that you are not living in the light of life after death. A Christian should, of course, wake up every day looking forward that they are one day closer to death, not because they are morbid or they hate their life, but because they enjoy all of the amazing blessings that God gives us right now and knows that, that those blessings only get better and better and better. And that someday when you close your eyes for the last time and breathe your final breath, you will open your eyes to immediately be in the presence of God and that the end of time, the end of history, your immaterial soul will be reunited with a renewed and resurrected body that you will enjoy forever and ever and ever. That is a glorious hope. Christians should indeed live in light of the future of life after death. But when you begin to think of your resurrected body, how glorious your life will be after you die, uh, Satan will plant this puzzling seed into your mind, which is that whether you are the, the kind of saint who comes into heaven and you're already glowing more than the pearly gates or the streets of gold, or whether you are the kind of saint who enters into heaven and you have to stop and drop and roll and call the angelic fire department, right? Whichever kind of saint you are, uh, you get a resurrected body. Uh, it, it can almost seem that, that this body is like the wrapper to a candy bar. Right? When you eat a candy bar, Three Musketeers, uh, it tastes really good no matter what you do with the wrapper. Right? You can be a good citizen, put that wrapper in the trash can, you can put it in your bonfire, you can throw it in the ocean with all the other trash there. Right? You can do whatever you want with that candy bar wrapper. That bar in the middle is still going to taste the same. And when we think about 1 Corinthians 15 and the importance that Paul puts on the resurrection of the body, it might be tempting to think that, well, this body, well, why does, why does it really matter what I'm doing in this life and with this body if I'm just going to get a renewed and resurrected body later? And furthermore, if the resurrection is indeed true, why does so much of Scripture in particular, 1 Corinthians, concern itself with how I am living right now. There are many different ways to answer this question, uh, but I want to answer it the way that I believe the Apostle Paul does in 1 Corinthians. And we'll do so beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. The context for this is sexual immorality. Because rightly so, if we're going to receive a resurrected body someday, why does it matter what I do with this body sexually or in any other way? Paul says, God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. We see resurrection, 6.14, 6.15. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Do you see that Paul says you're, you are united with Christ now? Your body is now connected to him. You are one spirit with him now. You are not waiting 
to have union with Christ until the future, you have it now in your current body, in your flesh, because you, you don't have a body, you're not wearing a body, you're not trapped inside of a body, you are your body, you're more than your body, you are also immaterial soul or spirit, but you are nonetheless also your body, which means that your skin, your blood, your bones, the nails on the end of your finger, the hair on your chin, the skin between your toes, the good, the bad, the ugly of your body is united to Jesus Christ right now. This is why when Paul is describing the resurrection in chapter 15, verse 42, notice the metaphor he uses. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. The metaphor he's using over and over again is that of a seed that is being sown. I'll think of that for a moment. Imagine a, a Michigan apple tree seed and a Michigan apple tree right at harvest in, in fall. If you were to hold those two and compare them and say, which one of these is more beautiful than the other? Well, of course it's the tree, right? You've got a little brown seed that fits in the palm of your hand, and then you have this enormous, complex tree that's full of bright red apples. Of course, that tree is far more glorious. In the same way, if you were to hold your pre-resurrected body in one hand, your resurrected body in the other, and say, which one is more beautiful, which one is more glorious? Well, of course, your resurrected body is going to be far more glorious. But... If you were to hold that apple tree seed next to the apple tree and say, which one of these produces apples? You would say, well, of course, both of them produce apples. That's what both of them do. I, obviously, the tree is a lot further along in the apple producing process, uh, but that's what both the tree and the seed ultimately do. They produce more apples. In the same way, if you have your pre-resurrected body and your resurrected body, you say, which one of these is the real you? Well, both of them are the real you. One's further along than the other one, but one of them is not more or less your identity. Uh, that's, that's the way the resurrection of the body works. There is discontinuity in glory, but there is continuity in identity. In other words, you're actually not receiving a brand new body in the resurrection. You are receiving a renewed body. You're receiving your same body. It is just resurrected. It is renewed. Our bodies in this life are not like the candy bar wrapper that just gets discarded so that something better can unfold. Your body is like a seed. Your good works, your life in this life is like a seed that gets planted in the ground and out of that springs your resurrected body that is united with Christ to come and is united with Christ now. Paul says we are now one spirit with Christ. And what does that mean, though? I, I think oftentimes when we think of our relation to Jesus, it can kind of feel like a relation to a celebrity that we know a lot about. Now, maybe you're going to watch the Super Bowl later tonight, and someone says, I actually know Patrick Mahomes really well. Really? Oh, yes, yes. I've watched every game he's ever played in. Uh, but have you met him, like, in real life? No. 
Right? So you don't really know him. Right? I know Jesus. We are one body, the same spirit. Really, yes. And I've read every book that he's ever written. There's 66 of them. It took me a whole year, but I, but I did it. But have you, have you ever seen him? Have you ever met him? Have you ever, as uh, the Apostle Thomas got to do, touched the, the place where his hands were pierced and where his side was pierced? Well, well, no. So you don't really know him. Now that's oftentimes how it feels. But remember, Christian, as Pastor John has already said, we live by faith. We live by trusting what God has says, what God has said. And that means that we ought to live by trusting what God says about our unity with Christ and not how we feel about our unity with Christ. Paul says we are one spirit and we are one body with Christ. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul is quoting from Isaiah 40, and he says, Who has known the Lord's mind that we may instruct him, or that he may instruct him? Isaiah, in the context of Isaiah 40, is asking a rhetorical question. No one, no one knows the Lord's mind that he may instruct him. But what does Paul follow that verse up with? He says, but we have the mind of Christ. You are one spirit. You have the same mind. You are one body with Christ. We read earlier that Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 6 from Genesis chapter 2, which is the same passage that he will quote from again in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 29, which says, No one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. How close are you to Christ? Right here, right now, in your physical body, with everyone else you are in covenant with. How close are you to Christ? You are as close to Christ as a husband is to his wife. You are, with your physical body, as close to Christ, as in relationship to Christ, as a man is with his own body. And even more so. Because what does Paul say in Romans chapter 7 is the only thing that should separate a man from his wife and is indeed the only thing that separates a man from his body. Romans chapter 7 says that that is death. And yet, what does he then say in Romans chapter 8, verse 38? What is the first thing that never separates us from Christ? Death. The only thing powerful enough to separate a man from his body. The only thing that ought to be powerful enough to separate a husband from his wife is the first thing that Paul mentions that never can separate Christ from his church. Not even the metaphor of a marriage or our bodies is adequate to describe how connected you are right here, right now, with Jesus Christ himself, the God-man. 
This is why St. Augustine, in talking about Christ, says he has not only a divine nature, not only a human nature, but he also has an ecclesiastical nature. He has a churchy nature about himself because the more you read your New Testament, the more difficult it is to distinguish where Christ ends and his church begins. This is why in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse Well, beginning in verse 3, the Apostle Peter says, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. By these things, He has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature. This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ so that I no longer even live, but Christ lives in me. This is why when Jesus speaks to Saul on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul had never laid a finger on the man Jesus. He had only touched those who belonged to his church, and yet Jesus says, not why are you persecuting my church, why are you persecuting me? And as if to drive the point home, Saul asks, who are you, Lord? And he does not say, I am Jesus the Lord of the church, or I am Jesus and you are persecuting my church. He says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. This is why theologian J.I. Packer says Christianity is not merely a set of beliefs. It's not merely a pattern of behavior. It is communion with Jesus himself. Trying to distinguish Jesus from his church Trying to separate them is like taking a bucket of ocean and with your naked eye trying to discern between water and salt. That is how connected you are to Jesus. You are, church, as united to Jesus right here, right now, as Jesus is united to himself. Augustine rightly said that the church is incomplete without Jesus by nature, and by necessity. And likewise, Jesus is incomplete without his church. Not by nature, not by necessity, but Augustine says, by choice. The church is incomplete without Jesus by nature, by necessity, and Jesus likewise, by choice, is incomplete without his church. To love Jesus is to love the church. To love the church is to love Jesus. To hate Jesus is to hate his church. To hate the church is to hate Jesus. That's why we put such an important emphasis on church membership. There are no Christians who are not baptized and outside of church membership. It is not possible. You have to be a part of the body of Christ to be connected to Christ. Because to be a part of the church is to be a part of the body, to be the bride to the bridegroom. It's important to note that this truth is only as amazing as you are amazed by Jesus. If Jesus is a pretty interesting guy, then it's pretty interesting that you have this kind of unity with him. But if Jesus is who he said he is, if he is God in the flesh who came to suffer and die and save sinners, 
then our only reaction initially ought to be that which Peter had when he recognized for the first time who Jesus was and said, depart from me, I am a sinful man. That ought to be our response to our unity with Jesus. And yet, despite the fact that we would have him away from us, he holds dearly on to his church. Several points of observation. Number one is what you should not be doing right now is, is thinking to yourself, oh wow, I must be pretty great. I've, I've got this really special, unique thing. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, in order that it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in not himself, not even in his relation to the one true living God, but let him boast in the Lord himself. Because your unity with Jesus right here and right now has nothing to do with anything that you have done or accomplished. This is why our confession as a church, the Second London 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, says this. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to do any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or even to prepare himself thereunto. When God converts a sinner and translates him into a state of grace, he frees him from all natural bondage under sin and by his grace alone enables him to freely will and do that which is spiritually good. If, you're, you, if you are saved by grace alone, then your boast can only be in Christ alone. And any, any parting of the ways from the way that the reformers like Martin Luther or John Calvin or like the authors of our 1689, any departure from their understanding in grace alone is not a departure from a simple disagreement in Reformed theology. It is a departure from biblical theology. It is a departure from what God has said about how he works, and it is morally prideful. If you are saved by grace alone, then your boasts can only be in Christ alone. Likewise, Paul says this, concerning unity with Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. He says, in fact, or excuse me, backing up, he says, it is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul says, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what any human group of people thinks about me. I don't even care what I think about me because all that matters now is that I am united with Christ and what he thinks about me. Once you were a slave to your flesh, to the whims of this world and to the temptations of the devil, but Christ has set you free so that you were formerly anxious about death and hell, and now the only thing you are anxious about in the best sense of that word anxious is how to please God because you have been united with Christ. And so as we begin to close, I want to look at how do we then please God? 
How do we, like the excited child who has been given everything by their parents and in return offers them a, pic- uh, a stick figure picture of their family, uh, that is about the equivalent of what we have to offer back to God, but we want to craft the best possible stick picture family to give to our Heavenly Father. How do we please God? Well, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verse 27. Uh, He says, Now you are the body of Christ, and you are individual members of it. That is to say that at the same time that Christ unites you to himself, he is also uniting others to himself. So at the same time he unites you to himself, he unites you to others, which is why Paul logically gets to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13, or excuse me, verse 12, where he says, now when you sin against brothers and sisters, you are sinning against Christ, which the negative of that is true. When you are loving your brothers and sisters, you are actually loving Christ. And so how do we then love our brothers and sisters, which is to love Christ and not sin against them, which is to sin against Christ? And that's why... 1 Corinthians, the most famous passage is probably 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is a passage on love. Because you see, God gives spiritual gifts to his people. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 that, that spiritual gifts are for the building up, for the common good, the edifying of the body. And the great thing about the church at Corinth, he says in 1, 7, is that they're not lacking in any spiritual gift. However, he says in chapter 3, verse 1, they are immature in how they're using their gifts. It's like giving someone the sharpest, lightest, best sword, but they're still terrible at fencing. They have really great gifts, but they don't know how to use them because they're using them selfishly. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, chapter 31, that he is going to show them an even better way because he's going to show them how to desire even greater gifts, and that's where he launches into love. What does it mean to love? Because love in one word, love is what Christianity is all about. To summarize Christianity in one word is to say love. In our world, we think of love oftentimes as what we see in a Hallmark movie. Some of that makes its way into the evangelical church, but more more so, I think that the collective unconscious of the evangelical church defines love as being passive. If we were to use one verse from scripture, if an evangelical were, I think, to define what love is, it would be Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, where Jesus says, do not resist an evildoer. Uh, And there needs to be passivity in love. If there's no passivity in love, it is not love. Because Jesus says that in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, that we are not to repay evil for evil. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, not to um, repay evil for evil, but to repay evil with a blessing. We see throughout the Gospels, the primary way that Jesus interacts with sinners is that he serves them and he suffers for them, both very passive actions. Likewise, there is a lot of passive love in 1 Corinthians. For instance, chapter 6, verse 7, where Paul says, As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. 
Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Or as Jesus says, if someone is trying to take your shirt from you, give them your cloak as well. If someone is trying to force you to go one mile with them, go two miles. Paul also says in uh, chapter 8, verse 13, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Paul, for him, it is better not to exercise his liberty than cause someone to sin. Or chapter 9, verse 22, Paul famously says, I have become all things to all people so that I may in every possible means save some. Love is passive. But if love is only passive, we become what Pastor Douglas Wilson says is an evangelical beanbag chair that simply conforms to whatever happens to be sitting on it. Love cannot only be passive. And it's not only passive in 1 Corinthians. For instance, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse uh, 21, uh, he says, What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love with a spirit of gentleness? Paul is saying it might be better for me to love you with the hard, aggressive love of a rod than the quiet love of a spirit of gentleness. Likewise, in speaking about unrepentant, sexually immoral church members, he says in chapter 5, verse 13, remove the evil person from among you, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 17. Cast that unrepentant sinner out of your church. That is anything but passive. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6, Paul says, love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth. And he says in chapter 13, verse 3, if I give away all my possessions, if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. He's saying it's possible to be so passive that when someone sues you for their sh your shirt, you give them your entire house. It's possible to be so passive that you submit to someone to the point of death. And Paul says it's possible to do that and still not have love. To be totally passive, totally compliant, and yet be completely lacking in love. Love is not treating others the way that they want to be treated. That's being nice. Because you don't always want to be treated the way that you should be treated. A love is not treating others the way they want to be treated. That's being nice. And let me tell you, most evangelical Christians, maybe all evangelical Christians, are very nice. I've never been to a church and thought, these people are not nice. They're always nice, but they are rarely loving. Because love is treating people the way that God commands. Love is not treating people the way that they want to be treated, which is to put them in the place of God. Love is to interact with others and treat people the way that they want to be treated. And that is your whole Christian life. In every interaction, every conversation, with all the different people that God is bringing into your life, it should be, how is Jesus discipling me to interact with this person at this time and at this place? And the details of that are for you to enjoy and explore and to grow and mature in. 
of this sermon is just one piece of that. Our entire covenant renewal service is one piece of that, and there are so many others, but that is the entire Christian life. It is learning to love and getting better and better at love. So as we close, who cares about this body? We're going to get a resurrected body someday. Why does it matter what I do in this one? Paul says it matters because you are your body. You don't have a body. You're not in a body. You're not wearing a body. You are your body. You are the body right now that someday will be renewed to a greater degree of glory. And God is not waiting to unite you with Christ in the future any more than he is waiting to love you in the future. You are united right now. Your body, your flesh, your blood, your fingernails, the good, the bad, the ugly, your physical body is united with Christ. And so you have been set free not to be anxious about Satan and sin and death and hell. You have been free to only be anxious about one thing, anxious in the best sense of the word, anxious on how do I now please God by loving others. So I will end completely with two brief exhortations. If you are a father in here, uh, people lie at funerals. You've probably experienced that in your life. You go to a funeral, oh, Bob Smith has gone away and we're so sad he's not here. And we're not because he was a jerk his whole life. We're a little relieved he's gone. People lie at funerals all the time. So the goal is that when you die, for somebody to honestly say in your obituary, this is so-and-so, they died at such and such a date, they were this old, they loved Jesus, they loved their wife, They loved their family, they loved their church, and they loved sinners. Not they made this much money, they made, uh, they traveled this many places, they had this many degrees, they read this many books. None of that matters. What matters is how did you love other people? What kind of seed are you planting in the ground with your body right now? for your resurrected body. None of those other things are of ultimate importance. They are only important insofar as they align with the primary goal of pleasing God by loving others. What is your obituary going to honestly say about you? And finally, if you've heard this morning the sermon, this sermon this morning, and you're reading the Bible, you're reading the Gospels and how Jesus loved others, and then Acts through Revelation, which is about how the apostles articulate Christ's love for the world, and then you read your old Old Testament and you see a foreshadowing of how God loved Israel, and you think I will never measure up or get close to that. It's, you feel defeated. The trial of loving others has come your way and you are tempted to give up. Remember what Paul has said in second, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. It is that you can do this because you have the mind of Christ, which means that you have the mind of love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that anything in this sermon that is ineffectual will be completely forgotten and all that will be remembered and followed through on are the good and true and beautiful and perfect things that are found only in your word. 
We thank you so much that you speak to us. Although we are sinful, we are immature that you give us Christ. That you have set us free not to enjoy our life in the future, but to begin to enjoy it right now, to learn what it means to love others and to embrace the same kind of joy that you experience today as the triune God. And we, I pray that we would, we would endeavor to love one another well, that we would not get so caught up in idealism that we forget we are dealing with messy, sinful people, and that we would love others, that we would not only be passive, but that we would also be aggressive in our love, but passive when we need to be, that you would give us your spirit, your spirit of wisdom, and how we ought to discern to love others each and every day, each and every interaction. In Jesus' name, amen.